Let's pray. Uh, Father, we do ask that you give us ears to hear tonight. Uh, we thank you for this uh, letter that you have written um, uh, to us through John. And uh, even though we're, we're very different to the time and we ask that you would give us understanding now and that you would show us again you'd reveal to us the glory of our risen Lord Jesus and that you would help us to live for him. Amen. Many of you have had mid-session exams this week and assignments to hand in. Who's, who is that? Quite a few. Um, put your hand up if you love being assessed. Oh, a couple of nerds up the back there. Um, but you know, for the for the majority of us, why is it that we don't like assessment? Why is it? Um, is it that we don't like to fail at stuff? Is it we don't like the scrutiny, the pressure, or we don't like the hard work that it takes to pass? Why don't we like it? And why do we then put up with it? Like, why are you guys back here at uni if you don't like assessments? Good question. <laughs> um, uh, I reckon it's because of what we get out the other side of it, isn't it? Um, hopefully, you know, you get knowledge and wisdom, which is why you shouldn't plagiarise. Um, hopefully, you know, after a few years, you'll be able to, to get a job. Um, you'll have some earning potential. Um, maybe some of us just do it because we have to. You know, parents told us that we've got to do it. Uh, when I was in school, in high school, uh, my most hated subject was English. Anyone else? Yeah. <laughs> Not alone. Um, uh, yeah, I hated having to read books, having to write essays, having to give speeches. You know, I just hated it. And I think it was in year 11, and we were given this stupid writing exercise, um, and I hated it so much. Um, you know, who, who even cares if I can write a story or not? You know, people say, you know, why do we need to do science and physics? Why do we need to write stories? I don't know. But anyway, in my cranky pants, um, I decided to mock the teacher and the class and the whole story writing practice. Um, so I. I gave them the most boring and stupid idea that I ever came up with. I wrote a story about the brick wall that was one metre in front of me. <laughs> the colour, the texture, the layers, the mortar, its unmovableness, the silence of it, and you know, I just really wanted to poke fun at the whole system. Um, and it came back with an A. <laughs> I didn't know if I should laugh or cry or flip over all the desks in a rage. Um, I think they ended up winning that round against me. Um, I ended up doing what they wanted me to do, you know, be creative and all of that. Um, uh, but none of us like being assessed, really. Well, most of us don't. Um, and as we come to Revelation chapter 2 and 3 tonight, that's exactly what's happening. Here are the assessments of seven churches in Asia Minor near the end of the first century. They're letters that Jesus has written from his throne in heaven. And uh, like Cara said, they're somewhat of a report card for these churches. As we saw last week, it was written to these seven churches. We saw last week, the number seven represents completeness and perfection. So the seven churches, it simply means all of the churches. Uh, we also saw last week that all of Revelation is a letter. It was one letter, the whole lot of it. But here in chapters 2 and 3, there are specific things written to each of those churches. Uh, but the plan is that all of the churches would read those, read, read those letters. Uh, there's particular stuff for the church, but there are principles there for, for all of the churches. Uh, you can see that at the end of each letter. Uh, the, the repeated refrain that says, anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Not listen to what's written only to your church, but listen to what is written to the churches. It's plural. Okay, every letter is for every church. And it's for every church in every age. Now this is pretty amazing stuff. Isn't it? This letter is addressed to us here at Uni Church, Wagga Wagga, on the opposite side of the world nearly 2,000 years later. Now, if you were to look at all the details of the letters, you'd find um, that there's 
there's historical facts tied to them. Uh, like in Pergamum, it says that, that Satan's throne in, is there, chapter 2, verse 12. Uh, Pergamon was the central place in the region for Caesar worship. The throne of Satan, uh, John calls it. Laodicea, um, at the end of chapter 3 there, it's known for, uh, for a bunch of things, but for its eye ointment. They're rebuked in, in their, we'll come up to a bit later, but they're rebuked for being blind. They, they need to get their salve from Jesus. Um, there's all this fascinating stuff in the details of, of these letters. Um, but we don't have the time to look at those tonight. Um, but in the, uh, the further reading that, that you guys have got in the sheet I gave you last week, if you didn't get that, there's some more up the back. Um, there's a, a book written by Paul Barnett called Apocalypse Now and Then, which will go into kind of more of the historical details. And it's quite, quite uh, fascinating. Um, but as we think about how these letters refer to us today... Uh, we do need to consider what it meant to the original hearers. <coughs> we can't just apply it directly to us. Uh, we live in a, in a very different time, very different world. It's bad Bible reading just to draw a straight line from them to us. It'd be like taking an Amazonian tribesman and dropping him in the centre of New York City. Or a city slicker coming to water. <laughs> now, expecting them to make sense of it all. To fit in with the culture, the language, with, with the technology. That if you put someone into a totally different context, they'll make all kinds of mistakes and, and faux pas. Um, and so as we think about applying the scriptures to our context, we need to understand the context in which it was written. And we need to work out the principle that's being taught in that context. And then we apply that principle to our context. Uh, for example, in chapter 2, verse 20, there's a woman called Jezebel there. As far as I know, there's no one by the name of Jezebel here at Unichurch. I don't think. There are no Nicolaitans in the world today, chapter 2, verse 15. Now, there's just a couple of examples. We can't directly apply what is being said there to us today. Uh, so we work hard at finding out what the principle is. And we apply that principle. So with that in mind, uh, let's get into the letters. Um, and as we read through them... Um, or as we read through them earlier, you would have noticed a bit of a rhythm to the letters, a bit of a pattern in each one. Uh, you get the address line, which church this letter is addressed to, says something about the speaker, the assessor. Um, obviously, it's Jesus as you read chapter 1 into it. Um, and, and all of the descriptions of the person who's writing this letter come from chapter 1. Uh, so let's just go through the, the start of these letters. Chapter 2, verse 1. It says there the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold lampstands. We saw that back in chapter 1, didn't we? Um, verse 8, the first and last, the one who was dead and came to life. Verse 12, the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Verse 18, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and feet like fine bronze. Chapter 3, verse 1, the one who has the seven spirits and seven stars. Verse 7, the holy one, the true one, the one who has the key... Verse 14, the Amen, the faithful and true witness. All of these things we saw back in chapter 1. They're all descriptions of what Jesus is like. And those actual descriptions hold particular significance for the struggles that those churches are having. They relate to what is in the letter. Uh, so, you know, for example, Jesus walking among the lampstands is to reassure them that Jesus is with them, that he knows his church. Jesus' eyes that are like a fiery flame are to warn that, that Jesus is the judge. He sees everything. Far from Jesus being distant to his churches, high up on his throne in heaven, we see he is walking among his church. He knows what is going on. He writes his letters to them. And as he does it, he is ministering to them. And so after Jesus introduces himself at the beginning of each letter, uh, he gives them his assessment of how they're going. Um, he praises them where that's due, uh, except for the churches in Sardis and Laodicea. They're uh, quite a bit naughtier than the other churches. They haven't praised for anything. Uh, then Jesus rebukes them for where they've gone astray. He calls them to repent, to change their ways and their attitudes. But not the church in Smyrna and Philadelphia. They're the healthier churches, so they're not rebuked. And then Jesus lays out all the consequences. What happens if they disobey his commands and what happens if they do? 
And right at the end, he gives these extraordinary promises to the churches if they do obey his commands. Um, and so as we step back and we, we, we consider chapters 2 and 3, um, what is it that Jesus values in his church today? What is it that he values? In what ways does he praise? And well, first of all, he values holding to the truth. Jesus praises the Ephesians for sticking with the true gospel. See uh, chapter 2, verse 2. Jesus says, I know your works, your labour and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you've found them to be liars. Now, the presence of false teachers in, the, in churches is no new phenomenon. Uh, it was happening right back in the early church, and it happens still today. And the influence of these false teachers can be quite damaging. Uh, this is why, you know, whenever we go to church, we need to have our Bibles open. Truth comes from Jesus, doesn't it? He is the way, the truth, and the life. The truth that we have comes from Scripture as God speaks, as he reveals himself to us. That's where truth comes from. It doesn't come from the person with the microphone. And as sincere as people can be, we still get things wrong. And the only way we can discern that is if we've got our Bibles open. Uh, the Bereans are a great model for us today. Uh, if you've got your Bibles there, have a look at Acts chapter 17. Uh, Acts comes straight after the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Um, Acts chapter 17. The Apostle Paul has been going around proclaiming the gospel. Uh, he's been facing heaps of persecution. Um, he's just been kicked out of the town of, of Thessalonica. Um, and we get to verse 10. As soon as it was night, the brothers, the night in, in Thessalonica, the brothers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea. On arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now they, they go there to proclaim the gospel to them. Verse 11, the people here were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica since they welcomed the message with eagerness. And here's what I want you to see. And they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of prominent Greek women as well as men. Be like a Berean. Listen to what the people listen to what people say and check it against the truth of the scriptures. And do it so that you're not deceived. Don't just believe what anyone says. Know the gospel, engage your minds, have critiquing ears, and don't tolerate false teachers. Um, and you know, that's why I love your questions at the end of my talks. Uh, I can and do get things wrong, um, and uh, it's great because we have the scriptures as our highest authority to. Uh, to, to work through together. And so as Jesus values holding to the truth, see what he says to the church in Thyatira, in, back in Revelation chapter 2, verse 20. Jesus says, uh, But I've got this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and teaches and deceives my slaves to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And Thyatira have accepted this false teacher, Jezebel, and her teaching has led them into great sin. Uh, so too in Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, I've got a few things against you, Pergamum. Yet some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, otherwise I'll come quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And false teaching is a serious matter in the church. And Jesus says we'll have to contend with him, with his judgment, if we don't reject it. Now, in addition to holding to the truth, Jesus also values godliness in his church. See how he praises some in the church at Sardis, chapter 3, verse 4. Uh, but you've got a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes. And they will walk with me in white because they are good. Now Jesus wants his church to be godly, to reflect the, the upright character of its saviour. 
Jesus values holding to the truth, he values godliness, but he also values endurance. One of the common threads throughout all the churches is that they face persecution. This is normal for any church and any believer. Uh, you might recall what the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12. He says, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, if you want to live a godly life, if you want to follow Jesus, truly, you will be persecuted. This is the norm for the Christian life. So if you don't want to be persecuted, well, don't be a Christian. But in the midst of this struggle, Jesus calls his church to press on, to persevere, to endure, as they bear witness to him. Uh, so to Ephesus, he says, chapter 2, verse 2, I know your works, your labour, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil. Verse 3, you also possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name and have not grown weary. Thyatira, verse 19, I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. Philadelphia, chapter 3, verse 8, <clears throat> I know your works, because you have limited strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. Look, I've placed before you an open door that no one is able to close. Verse 10. Because you've kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that's going to come over the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. And Jesus loves to see his church endure. Uh, check out the church in Smyrna. Um, chapter 2, verse 8. Now, just try and imagine what it would be like to live there. Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna, the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life, says, I know your affliction and poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they're Jews and not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, You'll have affliction for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Man, life sounds pretty tough in Smyrna, doesn't it? They've already been suffering, but it's about to get much worse. Some of them are about to be thrown in prison. Uh, prisons back then, you know, they're worlds <coughs> apart from our correctional centres in Australia today. They'll be afflicted for ten days. Um, <clears throat> Now, number 10 is just a round figure, uh, not a literal 10 days, but uh, just a set period of time that God will determine. Um, but some of them will even face death for the name of Jesus. Uh, from the city of Smyrna, there was a bloke called Polycarp. Uh, not a name you find in the top 10 baby names uh, at the moment. Um, but remember Polycarp. Uh, he, he was the leader of the church in Smyrna. Uh, the Bishop of Smyrna. Uh, he's, he's very well known, uh, very popular, and at the age of 86, 86, he was burnt alive at the stake for being Christian. Um, and <clears throat> the, the historical accounts say that you know, they were going to, um, to nail him, nail his hands so that he couldn't get away, but he said, no, no, I don't need my hands to be nailed. So they just, they just tied his hands behind his back he said, I'm not going to run away from this because Jesus is my Lord. He is my King. And they burnt him alive at the stake. And so in this letter to Smyrna, I reckon Jesus was speaking prophetically of, of, of Polycarp here. He would have been alive at the time that this letter was written. He may have even read it. Um, even though he was martyred about 50 years later after the letter was written. But despite this persecution, Jesus calls them, he calls his church to be faithful. It makes me wonder, if we call ourselves Christian, how far are we willing to go for the name of Jesus? Are you willing to be mocked by your friends? Ostracised, cut off? Ridiculed by your lecturers? Rejected by your family? Do you believe that this gospel message of the, 
the crucified and risen Lord Jesus who now rules in heaven? Do you believe that to be so true and so wonderful that, that you'd be willing to go to jail for it? To die for Jesus? Now that's a reality for many places in the world. <coughs> and it's increasingly so for Christians in the Western world too. Now people don't like our views on, on homosexuality and same-sex marriage. People are going to jail for it. How far are you willing to go in standing up for Jesus? How convinced are you of the goodness of the gospel for everyone? The only way to, the, to receive the crown of life in verse 10, Jesus says there, is to be faithful even to death. I wonder when Christian fellowship will have its first polycarp. Will it be you as you bear witness to the first and last, to the one who was dead and who came to life? Will you persevere to the end? Uh, earlier I spoke about being assessed <clears throat> and what keeps going, uh, going uh, what keeps us going through that assessment is the hope on the other side isn't it? It's hope that gets us going. And so as difficult as life is for these first century churches and also for every church including us today what keeps God's people going is a real certain hope that keeps pressing on. That just won't give up. And we see that, that hope, uh, and we see that hope in what Jesus promises to the victor, to the overcomer. Chapter 2, verse 7. I'll give the victor the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in God's paradise. And the victor here is going to be with God in paradise. Eating with the, the tree of life. Does that give you hope to endure, to stay faithful? Verse 11, the victor will be never harmed by the second death. Um, over in chapter 20, verse 14, it, it talks about the second death there. And the second death is hell. The first death is the physical death that we all have. Once we die, we all then will stand before the judgment seat of God. And he'll either give us eternal life or he'll send us to hell for eternity. And that is the second death. The person who is faithful to God in their life won't be harmed by that second death. They won't have fear in standing before the judgment seat of God. Will that give you hope? Verse 17. I will give the victor some of the hidden manna. I'll also give him a white stone. On the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Uh, the hidden manna here, it's referring to the eternal food that God will nourish his people with in heaven. Uh, it's hearkening back to uh, the food that God gave the Israelites as they wandered through the desert, the, the manna from heaven, the bread from heaven. What Jesus is saying there is that he will satisfy us with food that will last for eternity when we overcome, when we endure. Uh, now what's with the stone, it's a bit of a strange one. The commentators are, uh, are not totally sure about it, but it's probably connected to the manna. In, in Numbers chapter 11, uh, it's, the, the manna is described as looking like stones, uh, looking like gems made of bedellium, it says. Uh, the, the stone, it's a white stone, which represents purity. But the important thing about it is that on the stone is a name. It's the name of God. You, you find later in, in Revelation that the name of God and this stone is given to the believer. And the significance is that God himself is with his people. God is sustaining and uh, so the sustaining God, that the pure God is with his people. Look at the hope promised to the church in Thyatira. Verse 26. To the one who is victorious and keeps my words, works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. And he'll shepherd them with an iron scepter. He'll shatter them like pottery. Just as I've received this from my father, I will also give him the morning star. Um, Jesus is referring to Psalm 2 here. And Psalm 2 speaks about 
uh, God's king ruling over the nations of the world. The one who remains faithful to God will, will enter God's kingdom and will rule alongside Jesus. Does that give you hope? What about the church in Sardis 3 verse 5? The victor will be dressed in white clothes and I will never erase his name from the book of life but will acknowledge his name before my, my father and before his angels. Or to the church in Philadelphia, verse 12, the victor, I'll make him a pillar in the sanctuary of my God. He'll never go out again. I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven for my God and my new name. To the church in Laodicea, verse 21, to the victor, I'll give him the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also won the victory and sat down with my father on his throne. These are pretty incredible promises that Jesus gives to those who endure, to the victor. Eternal life with God, that's the prize. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the, the, the daily life, the daily struggles that we have, the persecutions that we face are no more? And we're going to be in the awesome presence of God with each other forever. That's a day to be looking forward to, isn't it? To give us hope to persevere. But these promises, this hope, is only for those who have an ear to hear. For those who listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To you and I, if we listen. And the key to truly hearing and receiving is to do the one thing that's commanded to the churches. Except the Smyrnans and the Philadelphians, because they're not rebuked by Jesus. But the key to truly hearing and receiving, is to repent. Did you pick that up when we read through the letters earlier? 2 verse 5, repent. Verse 6, unless you repent. Verse 16, therefore repent. Verse 22, unless they repent. Chapter 3 verse 3, remember what you've received and heard, keep it and repent. Verse 19, be committed and repent. The only way to receive the promises that Jesus gives and, and to have hope today is through repentance. To hear what Jesus has said, to turn from living that way and live his way. The only way any of us can gain eternal life and live with genuine hope in this life is to repent of our sin and live for Jesus. And if we do that, no matter what happens in our lives, no matter how grim today or tomorrow might look, now even as you might stand with the flames melting your flesh, we can live with hope, without fear. Whatever we might be facing in life, Jesus tells us we can face it with confidence because he is victor. Our eternal life is secure. Jesus knows what's on the other side of death, doesn't he? He's been there. And he's come out punching. He's alive. The one who was dead has come to life. Chapter 2, verse 8. He knows the way. He guarantees the way. As he takes our sin onto his shoulders and he gives us forgiveness and, and righteousness and hope in return. Do you have ears to listen is to hear what the Spirit is saying to you tonight. Now, if Jesus were to assess Uni Church, uh, what would he say in his letter? I dig your green carpet. I don't know. <laughs> um, but I don't think it would be too different. The same principles back then apply to us today. <coughs> don't abandon your first love. That's what Jesus tells the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 4. Don't abandon your first love. Now the, the Ephesians, they were praised for their endurance. They were praised for not tolerating evil. Praised for standing against the false teachers and not growing weary. But they've lost their first love. And the judgment that is coming on them is, is that they're in danger of losing their lampstand. Now, what does this actually mean? What does it mean to lose their first love? Well, they're standing firm, aren't they? They're enduring. They haven't lost um, their, their way. They're not growing weary. 
But whatever it is, this, they've abandoned their first love. Uh, but it's got to do with what's going to be taken away from them. The lampstand. The Ephesians should be lights to the world. They should be declaring the gospel, the, the truth of that. And they were doing that, if you read in the verse there. They once did love by sharing the gospel with people. But in their persecution, they've turned inwards. They've become introspective. They've lost the love for the lost that they once had. That's what it means by abandoning your first love. A grave danger that faces the church today in its persecution and in its comfort is that we turn inwards. That we focus on Christians. And so our evangelism stops. And if that happens, eventually we've lost the gospel. The good news is for all nations. And that is us. If, if we are guilty of, of looking inwards and neglecting those who are lost, well, Jesus calls us to repent, to keep witnessing about him. Yes, grow stronger as Christians, but don't lose your love for the lost. Jesus also tells us, don't tolerate false teachers. Be like the Bereans, know the scriptures, accept what is true and reject anything else. And so I implore you, please come to Uni Church, uh, to your growth groups each week with your Bibles open and gently encourage each other in love. Challenge each other, gently challenge me in love. The truth of the gospel is not something that we ever want to lose. So let's have our Bibles open. Jesus warns us about being like the church in Sardis. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. They've got a reputation for being alive, but they're really dead on the inside. Jesus is asking us, are we living a double life? Are the good works that we do, the fruit that people see, is it real fruit? Is it energised from the gospel, from the love that we know of God? From hearts that just love Jesus? Or are our good works the, the fruit that people see? Is it just stapled onto a dead tree? I want you to insert your name here. Does the, yeah, the Joash, does the, the Penny, does the Steve, insert your name in, does the Steve that everyone knows match up with the person Jesus knows you to be? Are you living a double life? A beautiful facade but full of dead bones on the inside. A hypocrite. Jesus calls us to repent. He calls us to walk with him. He calls us to clothe ourselves with his clothes and bear genuine fruit of the Spirit. Don't live a double life. And Jesus finally calls us not to be like the Laodiceans. Now they're neither hot nor cold. They're, they're lukewarm. Um, and... Pretty graphic language, Jesus is going to vomit them out if they keep it up. And there's nothing worse, is there, than a room temperature beer or coke on a hot summer's day. Now, yuck, who wants to drink that? Um, <clears throat> the, the city of Laodicea actually lay between two cities. And one of the cities had hot springs, and the other city had cold springs, uh, fresh water. Uh, but Laodicea, in the middle, it had neither of them. And so they had to pipe their water in. And by the time that the cold water got to them, they were kind of tepid and dirty. Uh, and people would try and, and drink it, but they'd spit it out. Same too with the, with, with the hot springs that were nearby as well. Um, it would make people sick if they drank it. Likewise, the faith of the Laodiceans wasn't good, neither hot nor cold. And so it wasn't good for the people who came in contact with it. It was bad for their spiritual health. And so what made them, made them lukewarm was their compromise with idolatry. And they mixed the teachings of Jesus with the pagan culture around them. Now, they were a rich, a rich city, a centre for banking. They were known for their fine linen, for their oil of olay, eye ointment. But their wealth came as they joined in the idolatrous and ungodly business practices around them. And Jesus says, stop and repent. Don't 
Put your trust in those things. Don't find your value there. In 3 verse 18, he says, Buy your gold from me so that you might be rich. Get your gold from the, the dodgy bankers. Come to me. Buy your gold from me. Get your white clothes from me. Not from all the linen in your city. Get your white clothes from me and your shame will be covered. Come and get eye ointment from me to spread on your eyes so that you may see. <clears throat> Where do you find your richness, your security? What takes away your shame and brings you healing? It's only Jesus that really does this. As we repent and let him into our lives. He says to, to these Laodiceans that he is standing at the door and knocking. Won't you let him in? And friends, he's not just talking about non-Christians. He's writing to believers in these places. Don't shut Jesus out from areas of your life so you can continue to fuel your idols. And Jesus is knocking on the door, not just saying, come in um, like to non-Christians, he's saying to Christians, you're shutting me out, let me in. What, is it, what, what sin is it that you keep struggling with as a believer? What is that thing that just keeps niggling? Is it porn? Is it your self-image? Is it people-pleasing? Is it gossip? What is it? Where are you shutting Jesus out of your life? It's time to let Jesus in and repent and to find your joy and your satisfaction in him. He's the only one who can do it. For Christians, there is no middle ground. There's no fence sitting. We're either for Jesus or against him. If we think that we can have Jesus for just part of my life, that's being lukewarm. And he will vomit you out. You don't want to be vomit, do you? The other option sounds much more appetizing to me. Have a look at verse 20. Chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus says, Listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and have dinner with him and he with me. Would you rather be vomit or eating dinner with Jesus forever? Would you like to dine with him at his banqueting table in heaven? At the wedding feast of the Lamb? And what can compare to that? The idols that we, we follow, the things that we love that are not Jesus, that we try and replace Jesus with, just don't compare at all. Would you like this fellowship with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Let him into your heart. Access all areas and find your joy, your satisfaction, your security in him. Even in the, the suffering and persecution that you may be in. Friends, we all hate being assessed. But as we get to know our assessor, although his assessment is 100% true, and it cuts us to the heart. He stands there beckoning us to come to him, to let him in, to find everything that we have ever needed or wanted and to be filled by his eternal love that he proved to us on the cross. Now his love is, is wider and deeper and longer than you can ever imagine. It's a loving assessment that he gives us from a faithful friend who wants us to persevere to the end where we will join him for eternity in paradise. But we can only get there as we hear his voice, as we let him in. We only get there by living a life not ashamed of him and his gospel despite the trials we face. We only get there by living a life of repentance and faith and the power of the Spirit who gives us ears to hear. Time for your questions, friends. Uh, what would you like to ask? Josh? What's he got against eating food of idols? Can you see in other places that he's overpowered to 
there's not such a big thing. Um, yeah, yeah, you're right. In, in other places that um, because uh, the, the pagan gods and things are not really gods, it's, they're not really sacrificing because they're nothing that they're sacrificing them to. So we have conscience to eat. Um, we have freedom to eat whatever because they, they're not really sacrificed to idols and things. Um, but uh, I think what's happening is um, the, uh, that is what uh, he's picking up on the Old Testament imagery in, in, uh, in Numbers 22 uh, with Balaam that you know, the, the, they were leading the people, the Israelites, to doing those things. Uh, and so making a, a parallel connection to them in that day. Uh, so there's that connection there. Um, but what, what it's talking about, though, is, is a compromising, a mixing. So, uh, they think that it's okay to actually go ahead with these pagan practices, to actually do these sacrifices, and to participate in the pagan worship. Um, and that's a big no-no. Sure, they can, they, can, they can eat it, but it's the, what's actually going on inside their hearts that they're compromising um, following God, and they're doing these things that God has told them not to do. Um, that's the problem. Kathleen? Okay. Um, so, back to the truth, being Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, so, say I'm having a discussion with a person that's also a Christian, and it's happened in Revelation, so people have got different views, opinions, mm-hmm. slash arguments. Yeah. Um, so, I myself, like, how do I know what argument is worth fighting for? Yeah. Is this argument like an essential <coughs> argument yep. and should I be fearful or how can I not be fearful because one of us is right because there's mm-hmm. the truth mm-hmm. but if both of us are studying the word of God yeah yeah yeah, yeah so yeah what hill uh, am I willing to die on yeah. as a Christian like yeah people die like polycarp um, for standing firm in the gospel um, yeah, there, there are certain things that are just core to Christianity, uh, like the divinity of Jesus, like his death and his resurrection, a um, whole bunch of things like that. Um, if you look at our, um, the AVS doctrinal statement, um, it's on our website, uh, there's, there are things there that tell us about who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there are other... Um, you know, other churches have different things like um, you know, the Articles of Faith um, in the Anglican Church or the Westminster Confession. Like there, there are certain doctrinal truths that we just can't compromise on. But there are, whole, are a whole lot of things that are kind of around the, the edges that, um, that you don't actually need to believe one way or the other in order to be saved. One example is like with baptism. Um, it doesn't really matter what you believe about baptism. You can still be a Christian regardless of the different views that you hold. And so, um, what it requires, actually knowing your scriptures, knowing what things it says are just dead clear, um, and that we, we need to hold to, uh, but there's a whole lot of other things that are kind of around the edges, and so you just need to kind of work out what things they are. But as we go about having those conversations, what we really need is humility. Um, that none of us have nailed it 100%. Uh, we all still get things wrong, and so uh, listening to each other and trying to understand where the other person's coming from um, is really important in this. Uh, and so having humility that, yeah, I might be wrong. Here are my reasons why I don't think I am, um, uh, but let me hear your <coughs> reasons and then we can talk about that. So humility is really important as we do that. That's why we can have um, unity with, with people who have different beliefs to us around the periphery, um, that, yeah, um, it's actually healthy for us to, to have really good conversations with our wives. Yeah. Um, Victoria? Yeah, I was just, like, on the whole baptism thing. Like, you're saying it's so important, but then I know in some things of Christianity, they view baptism as what saves you. So, like, I know in some forms of Catholicism, mm-hmm. they believe that that's how you know you've got. Yep. Um, and if you don't do that as a baby, you're going to go to hell. 
Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah, so I'd want to say, can you show me in the Bible where that is? Yeah. Um, and if it's not, I'll say, well, I'm sorry, I, I can't, I, I disagree with you on that point. Um, they might still hold firmly to that and they can still be a, a Christian as long as they still believe that you know, it is by grace alone that we're saved. But if they're saying that, no, you need to be baptised in order to be saved, well, I think that's moving away from what the Gospel says. Now, Romans 10 tells us um, two things in order to be saved. Confess Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. Um, yeah, so the, the, the foundation of our assurance is not in what I do, but in what Jesus has done for me. Um, and my assurance is not based on my performance now as a Christian, but on what Jesus has done. My security is with him. Uh, and so um, what we need to be doing there, the, the, the warning is that we need to make sure that we are still um, coming back to Jesus. So it's not like you... Um, uh, you know who Jesus is and then kind of don't have to get to know him more, that you can kind of live as you want. Um, the assurance comes that as we realise our sin, that we repent and we turn and, and confess our sin uh, and, and come back to Jesus. And so the, the, the genuine Christian is the one who has the spirit, who hears what Jesus says and that will turn back to him uh, when they realise their sin. But our confidence is not in, in, um, in our performance as a Christian, but in what Jesus has already done, and that he will help us, because his spirit is living in us, to lead us to repentance. So even repentance we can't claim as a work, yeah. but it's trusting that the spirit does that in us. Yeah. yeah, but we're not going to repent if we don't know the truth, if we don't know the gospel, what we sin. Yeah. Agree? Surely, surely the losing the lampstand is got to do with uh, the idea that they're not telling people about Jesus. Because a church is a body of people. If you're not telling people about Jesus, you're not going to grow. You know, and over time, it's going to, to dwindle away. Mm -hmm. um, it's not surely it's a, a collective thing, not an individual thing. Mm, yeah. So the yeah the nation of Israel is referred to as a as the lampstand throughout the Old Testament. Um, and, you know, you, you might remember Jesus' words about you know, letting your light shine. Um, uh, you know, don't hide it. Um, so there are, there are encouragements for us to, yeah, to do that. But, as, yeah, as a, as a corporate group, I guess it's, it's saying that. Yeah, perhaps more so than individual. Making sure we don't, yeah, lose our focus on the gospel going to the nations. Brenton? Um, in chapter 3, um, to Laodicea, mm -hmm. it sounds um, like, obviously they're all relevant, but it sounds particularly relevant for us here, um, kind of in the West, uh, where, you know, like, what needs do I have? Like, I can go home and have my pick of whatever I want for dinner. Yeah. Um, I might be a poor uni student, but I'm not exactly struggling. Yeah. Am I rich? What do I need? Yeah. How, how do you think we could, um, what we can do to try and combat, um, yeah, having that, that sense of I've got everything I need and not seeing that actually we're naked and, and shameful and, and wretched. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I reckon one of the things is, uh, is to begin every day and to end every day in prayer, giving thanks to God that you woke up, um, giving um, your day over to God saying, look God, I know there's got all this stuff's going to be happening today. I can only do it in your strength. I thank you that you're going to be with me and helping me in this. And at the end of the day, give it all back to God and say, I entrust to you the things that I've struggled with, um, uh, the, the, the fears and anxieties I have. Um, because what prayer does is it, it helps to understand our dependence on God. If you don't pray... You don't, you're not really depending on God. 
Um, and so one way for us to be doing that is, is to, to be constantly praying, you know, not even just at the start and the end, but, but throughout the day. Whenever you have a meal, to thank God. Whenever you um, fire up your, your laptop, thank God for the, the gift of that laptop. Um, it's living life thanking God for everything and not taking it for granted, um, I think is, uh, is a way for us to, to be conscious of God in, in every single thing. Um, like just the other night when I was um, up at the Mission Minded Cock, I was up there for two nights, um, I was just really cut to the heart that I was in a, put into a room with um, 11 other fellas in, in bunks and I was thinking, oh man, there's going to be definitely snorers in here. Um, and I don't know how much uh, oxygen I'm going to be getting. Um, it's going to be pretty putrid. And, um, uh, and you yeah, know, all these things were starting to run through my mind. But I, I just stopped and I thought, there are millions of people around this world at the moment. They don't have a roof over their head. They don't have a mattress. They don't have a sleeping bag. They don't have warmth. They don't have a full tummy to go to bed on. Um, we have it so well. And so I think it's giving thanks to God for everything. Every little thing uh, will help us to not be lukewarm. Come to him. See that we get everything from his hand. Why don't we pray, friends? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give us ears to hear. Give us ears to hear what your Spirit says to the churches, to us. You know us. You know our hearts. You know our works. So we ask that you would show us our hearts, show us your assessment of us, and in your mercy lead us to repentance and faith. We thank you for the certainties and security that we have in life and in death because you've already defeated death. We thank you that we can have this certainty and security because you've forgiven our sins as we put our trust in you. Uh, Father, as we all struggle in life, with our sins, uh, with health, with persecutions, uh, and we wander from you, please remind us of your wonderful gospel promises, that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you are with us, that you are ministering to us. So we ask that you would fill us with hope and not despair, and in your grace, strengthen us to endure. Strengthen us to stand against false teaching, to preserve your true gospel. Help us to have hearts that are full of gospel love for, for one another and for the lost. We pray that you would help us to be faithful to the end, whatever that might look like in our lives. Help us to bear witness to our risen King and to receive the crown of life. To see our names written in that book of life that you have written in there before the world even began. Help us to look forward to that day when you return and you'll put an end to all of the suffering that we face. We thank you for the hope that you give us in the gospel and the risen Lord Jesus.